First of all, I want to just say how grateful I am for this chance to be with you here today. Um, it is truly a gift for me and for my husband, Dave. Growing up, I had a friend who went to a Baptist church in a neighboring town from us, and his church was humming along. Routines had been set. They worked for everyone. They were followed Sunday after Sunday. That is, until a new pastor came to the church, a pastor who evidently didn't know the unspoken rule about the length of the Sunday morning worship service. His sermons went long every Sunday really long. Instead of dismissing the congregation at noon, it was often 12.15 or later when the final hymn was sung. After several months, my friend and his father had finally had enough. One Sunday morning, they parked their car right in front of the church. When noon came, with the pastor still going strong, they got up and walked out of the service right down the center aisle. When the service ended, the pastor took his usual position just outside the front doors of the church. This particular Sunday, though, he was met by the sight of my friend and his father sitting on the hood of their car, eating a picnic lunch. Now, I don't recommend this passive-aggressive method of dealing with pastor-parishioner conflict. <laughs> but I will say that the next Sunday, church did let out right at noon. My friend's church had experienced what is, according to one congregational consultant, the third most frequent cause of conflict among church members, conflict over the length of the worship service. So just in case you're interested, here are the top five most frequent sources of conflict, according to at least this particular consultant's experience. One, a change in the worship schedule. Two, disagreement over how to deal with a staff member involved in a compromising moral situation, and we'll just leave it at that. Three, the length of the worship services. Four, a lack of clarity about who makes decisions in specific areas. And five, the style of worship, usually with the hymnal group squaring off against those in favor of a big screen. And then, of course, there is the famous dispute of the color of the carpet, the group of attendees that don't know our way of doing things, the price of Wednesday night dinner, and the length of announcements. <laughs> and on a much deeper and more serious level, there are betrayals of confidence, breakdowns in communication, and failures to love. Living in community is hard, and that's even true for our church communities. We have pictures in our minds of people holding hands, singing kumbaya, no care in the world. But anyone who's ever tried being part of a community knows that the utopian fantasy that we have in our minds is not exactly the truth that we meet on the ground. Parker Palmer is a Quaker Christian deeply dedicated to peace, justice, and spiritual formation. And he spent a decade living in a learning community near Philadelphia. He writes that through that experience, he learned three things. Number one, 
the less one remembers about their last experience of community, the more likely they are to long for it again. Two, community is that place where the person you least want to live with always lives. And three, when that person that you least want to live with moves away, someone else arises immediately to take his or her place. Living in community is hard. And the Bible doesn't even try to gloss over that reality. In today's Gospel reading from Matthew, Jesus lays out a plan for conflict resolution. If another member of the community sins against you, then go and point out their fault when the two of you are alone. That sounds healthy and reasonable. If that doesn't work, if acknowledgement of the wrongdoing and subsequent reconciliation does not take place, then take two or three witnesses with you and talk to the person again. If the person who has sinned still does not admit their wrongdoing after this intervention, then we're told to tell it to the whole church. If the person refuses to listen to the church, then they are to be to the community as a Gentile and a tax collector. A Gentile and a tax collector? Really? I wonder how many churches have lifted these verses word for word from the Bible and placed them in personnel manuals. I hope very few. It's not that these verses aren't helpful or that they shouldn't have a place in the life of the church. It's just that we can't lift them out of context without losing sight of what Jesus is really saying here. To get the whole picture, we need to look at what comes before and after the passage that is our gospel reading for today. Right before today's gospel reading, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep. You might remember how it goes. If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is the will of your Father in heaven that not one of these little ones should be lost. So that comes just before our passage for, for today. And then there are the verses that follow our gospel reading for today. Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive them? We're told Jesus replies, not seven times, but I tell you, 70 times seven. Or as some have translated it in today's language, forgive them as many times as it takes. Placed between these two accounts, the parable of the lost sheep, and the commandment to forgive 70 times, seven times, placed between these two accounts, today's passage on how to handle sins within the community takes on a spirit of reconciliation and mercy. It is first and foremost a way to restore community once it's been broken. After all, what did Jesus do with Gentiles and tax collectors? He didn't cast them off. Instead, he ate with them, talked with them, called them to follow him, all much to the chagrin of the elite and legalistic ones among whom he lived. Today's passage is meant to be read side by side 
with the call for mercy, forgiveness, and restoration that surrounds it. But before we breathe a sigh of relief and think that we can just move on to forgiveness without doing the work of confrontation, I think it's important to acknowledge that the reverse is also true. Just as we can't lift these verses from today out of their context, we also can't lift Jesus' command to forgive 70 times, seven times out of context either. Throughout history, the church has done this very thing at times. The call to unlimited forgiveness has been used by some pastors to persuade battered women to stay with their abusive husbands, to persuade women and others to submit to violence over and over again. I don't think that is the spirit in which Jesus spoke these words about forgiveness. The truth is that we need both passages, the call to confront wrongdoing and the call to forgive. We need them both to make sense of what it means to live well within a community, to be true to the call to respect the dignity and worth of both the offender and the one who's been offended. For Christians, the goal of conflict resolution is always twofold, to deal with the harm that the wrongdoing has caused to the individuals involved and to the church, and then to restore the wrongdoer to the community. Sometimes there is a tension between these two things. It's not always easy to give them both equal attention. That's why some have suggested that we need to step back even further to set the scene for what Jesus is saying in today's gospel passage. We need to step back all the way to the beginning of this chapter in Matthew, when the disciples asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It is a question about power. Jesus takes a child and says, whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is about humility. It's about caring for those who are vulnerable and marginalized. It requires being aware of the power dynamics in the place where we are. Let's just be honest. How all these passages about conflict resolution get applied in a community often depends upon where those involved fit into the power structure. When a sin is committed against someone with little power in a community, someone who is marginalized, it is more likely that the emphasis will be on the side of forgiveness, maybe even forgive and forget. When a sin is committed against someone who has great power, it is more likely that the emphasis will be on the side of confrontation the point is that how we handle conflict is often wrapped up in issues of who has the most power in any given situation. And so Jesus knows this and he calls us to humility and to pay attention to the most vulnerable in any situation, including the situation of conflict. And all this brings us back to a core truth about scripture. The Bible doesn't give us cookie-cutter recipes for the perfect life or for the perfect community. Every rule or guideline in the Bible intersects with the particularities of a community, with the realities of location, past events, 
and power dynamics. And so every guideline in the Bible for how to do community requires interpretation. That's what Jesus means by binding and loosening. Binding and loosening is not about including or excluding people, but about how to apply certain principles and laws in a particular situation. It is a work that involves ambiguity and discernment. See, the Bible doesn't function legalistically. The Bible functions according to a logic of relationship, and relationships are anything but cut and dried. Relationships involve long sermons, picnics on the hoods of cars, and resetting expectations. It's been said that in community, there really are no resolutions, only ambiguous and messy attempts to find our way back to one another. Living in community is hard, but it's worth every ounce of discernment, humility, confession, forgiveness, and commitment that we bring to it. It's worth it because it's here where two or three are gathered, where two or three struggle to live faithfully. It's here that we find Jesus. And isn't that worth everything?